This is the second attempt at a previous installment. So the other one was raw and a bit rambly and in a fit of anxiety, I really wanted to get it out more for a sense of accomplishment to feel like I had done something because I'm sure some of you can relate. Sometimes you have thoughts or you have a project and you just want to get it out, get it done. And then you revisit and you're like, oh, that could be better. All right, so here we go. Hopefully this one's better. So this deals with the healing of Aeneas, which we find in Acts chapter 9. And when considering this short little passage, and it is short, it doesn't actually offer much by way of narrative, let alone exposition or elaboration. I was struck by how it can correlate to three other scenarios that are all very, very similar. And what I'm hoping to do is be able to what I'm hoping to do is be able to relate these scenarios all to each other to see how the healing of Aeneas can fit into the larger puzzle of scripture, I guess, as it were, so that we can really understand something of what God is trying to say. Well, God's not trying. So we can really better understand one of the things that I think God is saying to us in real life, in real terms, on the ground, whatnot. All right, so let's start off. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, so Peter is wandering around doing his preachy-preach thing. As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they were and they turned to the Lord. Okay, so as Pastor pointed out to me recently, interesting to note here. So Aeneas is paralyzed. Doesn't just say lame, like it says in some of the other uh, similar situations, but it says paralyzed. And the pastor noted that for someone to be paralyzed in the first century, I guess it really isn't much different from how you get paralyzed today. You fall off of something and you break yourself paralyzed or you have a stroke and you know you get paralyzed over a quarter or half your body something like that so either way Aeneas has been rendered infirm and I like that word infirm because it's a combination of two Latin roots in which is a negative kind of like not and firm well firm stable sturdy solid as opposed to weak or unstable or unsteady so literally, Aeneas's body, his physical being, has been made unsturdy, incapable then of functioning. And he's told that um, Jesus Christ heals him, walk and make his or get up and make his bed. This is really similar to another situation in Acts where a lame man is sitting at what's called the beautiful gate to the temple. And I also it struck me that the words that Peter, same dude, says to him, at least to my ears, strike a somewhat similarity with what Peter says here to Aeneas. In that situation, Peter looks at the guy and says, I don't have any uh, silver or gold because the dude's begging. He wants money. But Peter says, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And then it says, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So the physical thing that had rendered him immobile, lame, 
if you want, let's use the word paralyzed. That physical thing that had rendered him paralyzed had been made strong, sturdy, firm. So that now he is no longer infirm, but can function in this world on his own. One can then conclude that even though the narrator doesn't say it, that when Aeneas immediately rose, whatever it was physically that had rendered him infirm, whatever just had him paralyzed, unable to move, bedridden, it was made firm. It was made sturdy. And so now Aeneas can function. So, okay, looking at my nose here, trying not to ramble too much. All right, but we know from scripture and from experience that God doesn't heal most physical infirmities. Sorry if that was a bit of a hard switch, but that is where I'm going next. And it's true. God doesn't heal most physical infirmities. He didn't then. He doesn't now. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus says there were many widows in Israel at a particularly bad time during a drought and a famine. And it, widows can't you know, support themselves even in good times. That's why it sucks to be a widow. But Elijah was sent only to Zarephath in Sidon. Not even an Israelite. Lots of people, God's people, Israelites, needed real help surviving the circumstances of this life, and God didn't provide it. He provided it, at least recordedly, to one person, and she wasn't even part of his people. Also, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Lots of people, God's people, were enduring disease, social ostracism, economic distress, and God didn't address these problems. He didn't heal the one thing that would have started the domino effect to possibly fix the other issues. Heal the leprosy and the things like the social ostracism, the ability to get a job, hold a job, interact with other people, provide for yourself, flourish, should ideally all start falling into place. So what gives? Why is God so stingy with his goodness? People need real help surviving this world. And all we seem to get from God oftentimes is seeming silence or indifference. And when he does heal, he heals these random people. And for what? So that people may be amazed by his power? To what end? Since we know that he isn't likely to employ it for us. At least those are some of the questions that came to my mind when I was jotting down notes somewhat fiercely yesterday. Thus a common plate against God complaint against God might go. But I once heard, same pastor, the miracles are better understood as windows rather than spectacles. They're meant to be looked through, not marveled at. Well, we need to keep in mind what the purpose of life is. Westminster Shorter Catechism says that it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Put more logistically, the purpose of life, or how to do it, is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's exactly what God says he demands of us in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So consider what may or may not be necessary to live towards this end. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Acting justly. 
loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. This brings me to the second man, the second lame man that I think correlates to Aeneas' situation. And this is the man uh, who was lowered to the roof. One of the first healings, if not the first healing, that's recorded in the Gospels. So friends, or whomever they were, brought this guy to Jesus for healing, physical healing. Probably so that the other very, very real socioeconomic hardships of his life might have a chance to improve. Again, if he can't physically walk, he can't work. Can't work, can't support himself, probably begging, might be dirty, possibly even disease-ridden. We don't know, but a lot of these things are highly likely. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. What? Aside from being an out-of-left-field non-sequitur, that's what uh, the guy didn't come for. It's likely, I would wager, that his sin, as a category, is nowhere close to being on his mind. But his infirmity... And his poverty are. A lot of us don't think about our sin. We know we're not perfect. But we don't think about our sin as a category. We just don't. It's not part of our day-to-day thinking. In good times and bad times, we don't consider that. Chances are this guy wasn't either. He's human. Normal. (laughs) But in response to a different objection that was raised by the Pharisees, uh, who were in attendance at this, Jesus says... Which is easier? So I'm asked the same thing. What's easier to heal? A leg? A bone? A stroke? A heart attack? An organ in need of transplant? A chemical or hormonal imbalance? Now it's true, we haven't cured cancer yet, but we understand these things. We're working towards that. We can figure that out eventually. Or is it easier to heal anxiety? Depression? Insecurity? Envy, jealousy, malice, codependency, anger, apathy, self-centeredness, self-righteousness. Aside from these being just harder aspects of the human condition to address, healing them is not as instantly verifiable to people either. You get a reputation for being angry and all of a sudden you're not, or you've actually done some lot of real work to really alter your basic mode of operation, some people just won't see it. A lot of people won't see it soon enough. So it kind of goes back to what's easier to heal? The body or the soul? So regarding the rooftop dude, Jesus says, so that it be believed that he has the power to forgive sin and heal its causes, He does the easier thing and heals the body, which is a miracle in and of itself. Do the thing that's verifiable that people can see that should be, you know, impossible. And it gets people thinking maybe this guy can actually help address the real, real problems of what it is to be human. And so this brings us to another correlation, a third one. The man at Bethesda in John chapter 5. He's desperate, living in hell for decades around so many other wretches. Uh, Sorry, my handwriting sucks. Uh, Yeah, if he takes notice of these other people at all, it's probably 
to compete, well, no, it is to compete with them for healing. We know that from the actual text. Or, I would wager, he only sees them as horrible reminders of his own condition. You know, looking around him, seeing just these ugly, scrawny, emaciated, depressed, pathetic, disease-ridden, half-living carcasses. And he knows that he's one of them. He doesn't see these people. He sees sad reflections of himself. Again, I would wager. Not to mention that in his desperation, he's come to a place that can't give him what he wants anyway. He's grasping at superstition. Jesus asked him if he wants to be well. Well, that's a seemingly ridiculous question. It's also an odd place to start this conversation. Honestly, I can't think of the conversations around any other healings beginning in this way. You want to get better? Oh, no, I'm good. (laughs) So the man's response reveals how consumed he is by himself and his own situation. Go read it. John chapter five. But pause. I just said that this man's response reveals how consumed he is by himself and his own situation. Revisit what that situation is for a second. We do well to remember that the book of Acts and the Gospels are not stories, but are historical accounts. These are but brief details of the lives of real people. And what they experienced will never be known by many who read those accounts. But there are many throughout history, many today, many in our country, our city, our own neighborhood, our own family. Have I done the evangelical thing? I'm making it personal yet. Who do understand, who experience similar things. And the living hell of life often makes it hard to hear, understand, and accept the truths in these scriptures. So I think I'm doing better this time than last time. I'm not rambling as much. But the thing that I really, really, really want to get across, because this is what is impacting me, and I'm trying to simply share with you what God shares with me for my sake. He shares it with me for my sake. I'm not sharing it with you for my sake. Anyway. But I'm one of those people that hasn't experienced any of this, really. Not the physical stuff. Not the poverty stuff. I don't live on Seven Mile Road in Detroit. Not growing up in war-torn Yemen. I'm not a survivor of ethnic cleansing. And oftentimes, living in these situations does make it hard to hear, understand, and accept the truths that are in these scriptures. And it is a prayer of mine that we never lose sobriety of mind regarding this fact. That these are not trite truths and should not be discussed or considered or rejected as if they were. So back to our tale. Jesus heals the guy at the pool at Bethesda and then disappears. When the man sees Jesus again, Jesus says, see, you healed. Sin no more, then nothing worse may happen to you. Here's the thing. 
The man had been healed physically, but he was still the same guy. Essentially, Jesus is saying, your own healing is a window. See what the real problem is. You think you were in hell, gnashing of teeth in an eternity for the 38 years that you were a cripple? Imagine worse if you don't seek real healing. While the man was a lame wretch, he was so consumed by his own unbearable life that it's entirely reasonable to deduce that he was experiencing a number of the defilements that are enumerated in chapter 7 of Mark's gospel. Envy, pride, and foolishness, for sure, I would wager were part of what he was experiencing. He rendered himself unable to live life as it ought to be lived in the service of God. These are what paralyzed him. If we go back to Aeneas, Aeneas was paralyzed, not just lame, but full on paralyzed, incapable of movement. These things are what paralyzed this man far more severely than his body did. So how might his own life have been enriched if he had taken comfort from God and embraced joy in his presence? How might he have loved the other very wretched and diseased people who were around him? How may he have lived better if the inner man the real man, had been healed of his paralysis. Go back to the litany of defilements or of sins that are in Mark chapter 7. These are what actually paralyze us from living life properly. These are what prevent us from living a life of faithful service unto God. These are what stop us from acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. And so that we may know that God has the ability to heal these things, these harder things, he will occasionally give us a window and heal a body so that we may come to understand and actually trust that he just might, (coughs) is capable of healing the harder things, the deeper things, the paralyzing things. At this point, we need to pause one more time, though. And we need to keep in mind that God won't heal everything. we got to bring it back down to earth. All those sobriety. God won't heal everything, even among those harder things. Why? So that the completeness of his strength, power, and excellence may be fully observed against the backdrop of human weakness. Now, it's not going to make God an awful person. He's not trying to elevate himself by keeping us down. But it is a sober perspective. And Paul himself testifies to this. Paul mentions a thorn, a messenger of Satan, essentially a tempter. Well, a tempter towards what? Probably something that would pull his focus and his dependency and his activity away from God and onto the frustrating hardship of his own life and circumstances. I was about to say something that would pull him away from God, and it's not untrue, 
But to my own ear, at least, that's just, it's too vague as to be unhelpful. I'm like, yeah, preach on the usefulness I thing I've heard over and over again. Oh, it pulled him away from God. What does that look like? Focusing on his own frustrating hardships and you know, life circumstances. Paul was poor, sometimes homeless, getting rocks thrown at him, scraping for food, working with his hands. He was a Harvard grad working at the grocery store on the night shift, doing manual labor for a pittance. I didn't handle that well when I was in that situation, and I did it for only 10 months. Compare this with Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Why does God leave people to harass and antagonize Israel? Well, the text says so that the next generation may understand war, may understand struggle, may understand the dependent nature of human existence, and that the point of life isn't the struggle. It isn't overcoming the struggle. The point of life is living to the faithful service of God according to His will and His guidance within, in spite of, and regardless of any other circumstances. And in order to do this, the harder things, the internal things, those things which actually paralyze us from living well, need to be healed. And so why did God leave the thorn in Paul's side? To teach Paul that the grace afforded him is sufficient to perform his faithful service. And that, just as people marvel at the miraculous healing of the body, they may wonder all the more at the patient endurance of one faithfully living in the comfort Love that word. Look it up its etymology. The faithful living of, uh, sorry, people may all the more marvel at the patient endurance of one faithfully living in the comfort that only, I mean only, our God can and is willing to provide. All right. I hope that one was better, drawing some of the connections that I made. I do pray that it was useful. Really, really useful. If nothing else, in grappling with these concepts and really understanding what it is that I believe God is teaching us about the human condition and how to address it, how he fits into that, and that if you ever find yourself or someone you love in a similar situation anywhere close to Aeneas or any of these three other guys, that you remember this and that it be genuinely useful. All right. I guess all that having been said... Deuces till next time.